Hello and welcome to episode 40 of Paper View, where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in the true context in a weekly podcast. And the first subject this week is one of the big stories of the week. Donald Trump and the migrant caravan. This is in the Daily Mail. Border shutdown. Trump is preparing an executive order to ban all Central American migrants, even those seeking asylum, from entering the U.S. via Mexico amid caravan chaos. President Trump is preparing an executive order to ban the caravan of Central American migrants from entering the United States. Trump's plan would block the migrants who are still nearly a month away from reaching the border from seeking asylum, according to Politico. Reports that the president plans to take executive action followed a tweet in which he told the caravan to turn around because border patrol agents would bar the migrants from entering the U.S. Thousands of migrants, including many women and young children, are seeking refuge from the violence that plagues Honduras. They are making the trek through Mexico to the United States in the caravan. U.S. law permits foreigners who are fleeing persecution in their native countries to apply for asylum on U.S. soil. Trump's executive order would suspend this statute for all Central Americans as a matter of national security. A DHS official who had been briefed on the potential executive order told Politico it can still be abandoned or adjusted before the administration files it. Department of Homeland Security Department Secretary Kirsten Nielsen said that everything is on the table. If they come here illegally with no legitimate reason to stay, they absolutely will be apprehended and removed immediately. She told Fox News on Thursday. They should be seeking refuge in Mexico. To ignore refuge and continue in some cases to come to the United States raises questions of what their real motives are. This caravan cannot come to the United States, she continued. They will not be allowed in. They will not be allowed to stay. Trump's prospective executive order, much like his extreme vetting directive for foreign nationals from countries associated with terrorism, would rely on the law that allows a president to suspend entry of foreigners seen as detrimental to the interests of the United States. The Supreme Court eventually upheld a version of Trump's travel ban and DHS believes an order pertaining to the caravan will be upheld too. I think the courts respected a thorough national security review that was undertaken, one told Politico. Here you've got something that appears to be completely political and focused on a caravan of women and children. The article goes on. Many have accused Trump of pushing his dialogue about the caravan in recent weeks as a way to rile up his base before the upcoming midterm elections. Trump claimed on Thursday that asylum seekers would be immediately and unequivocally denied at the border. To those in the caravan turn around, we are not letting people into the United States illegally, he tweeted. Go back to your country and if you want, apply for citizenship like millions of others are doing. The tweet followed a report that the Pentagon is finalising a deployment of 1,000 troops to assist border agents with the expected influx. Trump has said repeatedly that he was mobilising the military and not the National Guard in anticipation of the caravan, even though the deployment, as he's described it, would violate the Posse Comitatus Act. Posse Comitatus is a federal law to limit the powers of the federal government in using federal military personnel to enforce domestic policies within the United States. The article goes on. Around 2,000 members of the National Guard have already been deployed to the border since April. The caravan still remains 1,000 miles south of the border and it is estimated it would take migrants another 25 days just to reach America. Trump issued his latest declaration about the caravan on Thursday afternoon just before a call with Italian Prime Minister Giuseppe Conte. He says they spoke about the new leader's hardline efforts to curb illegal immigration. I agree with their stance 100% and the United States is likewise taking a very hard line on illegal immigration, Trump tweeted. The Prime Minister is working very hard on the economy of Italy. He will be successful. 
The article goes on. The Italian government is looking to drive out half a million unlawful migrants. Trump has pointed to Europe twice this week as he defended his immigration tactics, which he claims are necessary to keep criminals and Middle Easterners from entering the country illegally as part of the caravan. For those who want and advocate for illegal immigration, just take a good look at what has happened to Europe over the last five years. A total mess. They only wish they had that decision to make over again, he said on Wednesday. Trump has long claimed that terrorism on the continent is directly related to the European Union's free flow of people and furthered by policies in Germany and other nations where migrants are welcome with open arms. We are a great sovereign nation. We have strong borders and will never accept people coming into our country illegally, he declared on Wednesday, refusing to back down. At a rally on Wednesday evening, the president stamped down his rhetoric in response to a series of bombs that were sent to his political opponents. But he continued to claim, with no evidence, that Democrats were encouraging the caravan and want to open the illegal immigration floodgates. As we speak, the Democrat Party is openly encouraging caravan after caravan of illegal aliens to violate our laws and to break into our country, Trump said, of the border crisis that has consumed his attention. Trump has made immigration his top campaign issue and deployed new rhetoric this week that there are tough criminal elements in the caravan. He also claimed there could very well be Middle Easterners mixed in with the masses in a not-so-subtle suggestion that the group seeking refuge in the United States could be a Trojan horse. There's no proof of anything, but there very well could be, Trump said, providing no evidence to back up his claims. He also called forward Vice President Mike Pence to talk about the caravan, who made unverified allegations that the migrants were formed by leftist groups and paid for by the government of Venezuelan leader Nicolas Maduro. At the president's direction, I spoke to President Hernandez of Honduras. He told me that the caravan is now making its way through Mexico, headed for the southern border, was organized by leftist organizations and financed by Venezuela, Pence claimed. Trump interrupted him to add that Democrats were also to blame an allegation he first made at his rally in Houston on Monday night. And the Democrats maybe, and the Democrats, Trump said it as some of the aides, staff and lawmakers with him in the Oval Office for a bill signing laughed. Well, Pence began, but before he could finish, a reporter asked Trump what proof he had Democrats were behind the mass migration. You know what? Trump responded. You're going to find out and we're going to see. Maybe they made a bad mistake too. We're going to find out about that. Trump also argued that based on the size of the crowd of migrants, there was a very good chance some Middle Easterner people were in it. I think there's a very good chance, honestly, that you have people in there, he said. Certainly you have people coming up through the southern border from the Middle East and other places that are not appropriate for our country. And I'm not letting them in. They're not coming in, all right? They're not coming in. We're going to do whatever we have to. Trump turned the conversation back over to Pence, who earlier in the day had defended Trump's claim there are Middle Easterners in the caravan, saying it's inconceivable there wouldn't be. Pence repeated the same inconceivable line in the Oval Office. The United States of America intervenes and prevents 10 terrorists or suspected terrorists from coming into our country every day, he said. So it's inconceivable there would not be individuals from the Middle East as a part of this growing caravan. He made a similar remark at an event held by the Washington Post earlier in the day, saying, It's inconceivable there are not people of Middle Eastern descent in a crowd of more than 7,000 people advancing toward our border. But the statistic Pence used with claiming 10 suspect terrorists are apprehended every day has come under doubt with fact-checkers and government reports saying that number applies to incidents at all U.S. points of entry and not just the border with Mexico. Pence made a similar claim in February about how many suspected terrorists were being nabbed at the U.S.-Mexico border, which he claimed was seven per day. The fact-checking website Political Fact researched his assertion and rated it a pants on fire, their worst rating. Nationally, in 2017, the federal government says Homeland Security stopped 2,554 individuals on its terrorist watch list. 
from entering the country, which breaks out to seven people a day. Most of those individuals try to enter by air, the government says, the website noted. In June, Department of Homeland Security Secretary Kirsten Nielsen defined the 10 number even further, saying there were people blocked from entering the United States, indicating it included individuals on the no-fly list and not merely those suspected of being a terrorist. The result is that we are identifying and stopping terror suspects who would otherwise have gone undetected. In fact, on average, my department now blocks 10 known or suspected terrorists a day from travelling to or attempting to enter the United States, she said. In a statement to the Post, Pence spokeswoman Elisa Farah affirmed the number the vice president cited applies to all U.S. points of entry. In 2017 alone, the U.S. apprehended on average between 10 suspected terrorists a day attempting to enter the country illegally. And those are just the ones that we catch. It's inconceivable that this caravan, which is being broadcast around the globe, hasn't already been infiltrated by individuals with ties to extremism, she said. Meanwhile, the Washington Post's fact-checker found that Trump's own State Department released a report in July 2017 that said there was no credible information that any member of a terrorist group has travelled through Mexico to gain access to the United States. And still, the 10 terrorists a day statistic continues to be used by the White House to back up the President's claim. On Monday, White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders was asked if President Trump had credible evidence there were Middle Easterners in the caravan. She used the 10 terrorists a day number again, although, unlike Pence, seemed to apply it to all points of entry in the US. Absolutely, and we know this is a continual problem. It's not just in this. We have 10 individuals suspected or known to be terrorists trying to enter our country every day. This is a problem the president has been talking about a long time, she said to reporters outside the White House. The group of migrants which started in Honduras and has grown on its journey through Central America and into Mexico is continuing their march with the United Nations, estimating earlier this week that there were some 7,200 people in the crowd. On Wednesday, Mexican authorities said the number has dropped significantly to around 3,630 people. A team of AP journalists travelling with a caravan for more than a week has spoken with Hondurans, Guatemalans and Salvadorans. They have not yet met any Middle Easterners. And there's another article here from the BBC website which explains the migrant caravan in more detail. Migrant caravan, what is it and why does it matter? Thousands of migrants from Central America are trudging north towards the US-Mexico border. They say they are fleeing persecution, poverty and violence in their home countries of Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador. The journey poses a host of dangers such as dehydration and criminal gangs, but many of the migrants say they feel safer travelling in numbers. Here is what you need to know about the convoy of people known as the migrant caravan. How did it begin? On 12th of October in the crime-ridden Honduran city of San Pedro Shula, a group of 160 people gathered at a bus terminal and prepared to set off on the dangerous journey. They had been planning the trek for more than a month in an attempt to escape unemployment and the threat of violence in their home country. Well, some of them. You don't know that it's all of them. The article goes on. Most previous migrant caravans have numbered a few hundred people, but after a former politician posted about the plan on Facebook, news of it quickly spread and the numbers swelled. By the time the group set off in the early hours of 13th of October, more than a thousand Hondurans had joined. They have since crossed into neighbouring Guatemala and then Mexico, with thousands more people joining along the way. Why did they form a caravan? Most of the migrants say they are seeking a new life and better opportunities in the US or Mexico. Others say they are fleeing violence in their home country and intend to apply for asylum. Honduras, which has a population of about 9 million, has endemic problems with gang violence, drug wars and corruption. The wider region has one of the highest murder rates in the world. It's our dream to reach the United States. We want to give our children a better future and here in Honduras we can't find work, one mother of two told local newspaper El Jarado. 
While Central Americans have long fled their homelands for the US and have sometimes joined forces along the way, the organized nature of this caravan is relatively new. Migrants are often kidnapped by people traffickers and drug gangs who force them to work for them. A large group such as this one is harder to target and therefore offers more protection. How big is the group? It is hard to say exactly, but the caravan has grown rapidly in size as it has moved north. A spokesman for the United Nations said more than 7,000 people have joined the group as of 22nd of October, citing estimates from the International Organization for Migration. But some migrants have turned back or been offered asylum in Mexico, meaning that number has decreased. On 30th of October, U.S. border officials said the caravan was moving through southern Mexico and consisted of approximately 3,500 people. Separately, the official said a second group of 3,000 mainly Honduran migrants was at the Guatemala-Mexico border. What is life like for the migrants? The journey is grueling and poses a number of challenges for those who decide to join the caravan. The hot weather means sunburn and dehydration are a constant risk and some of the migrants have attempted to protect themselves with umbrellas and pieces of cardboard. A number of people have fainted during the journey after walking for six consecutive days. The migrants have been sleeping on the streets or in makeshift camps and there is a lack of clean water and sanitation. Food is also in short supply and local people have reportedly been providing the convoy with some food as it passes through. At the border between Guatemala and Mexico where migrants face long waits as border officials check their documents. There were clashes with police as tempers flared. Some migrants threw stones and the police fired tear gas leaving several people injured. What happens if they reach the U.S.? There is a legal obligation to hear asylum claims from migrants who have arrived in the U.S. if they say they fear violence in their home countries. Well, they're all going to say that then. Those seeking asylum must be fleeing due to a serious fear of persecution. Under international law, these are considered refugees. If an asylum seeker enters the U.S. illegally, they are still entitled to a hearing of their claim. But those seeking a better quality of life, even if they are fleeing devastating poverty, are not considered refugees and do not have the same protections. U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions says the credible fear asylum rule has been exploited in the past and announced in June that victims of domestic abuse and gang violence would no longer generally qualify under it. This turn-back policy is currently subject to a lawsuit from the Southern Poverty Law Centre, which accuses immigration officials of unlawfully delaying access to the asylum process. Well, the Southern Poverty Law Centre is one of these Zionist organisations which goes around defaming people, questioning and challenging the actions of the Israeli regime and pointing out the influence of Zionism in politics and other areas globally. So it's no wonder a Zionist organization will be in favor of migration. Because migration is an elite agenda and Zionism, revisionist Zionism, is an elite network. They don't care about poverty, the Southern Poverty Law Center. Individual people within the organization might, but overall they use the cover of being a non-profit organization to reap the financial benefits that come with being a non-profit organization. The Campaign Against Anti-Semitism, another Zionist organisation, is a charity, they say, when it spends its time defaming people questioning and challenging the actions of the Israeli regime and pointing out the influence of Zionism. They have connections to government, local authorities, police and the Crown Prosecution Service. And in at least one case, they've colluded police and a council official to get an event cancelled by lying about the person speaking at the event. This is documented. Certainly they intimidate venues or try to to cancel events of speakers challenging Israel and Zionism. They've gone after Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party here in Britain. How they can call themselves a charity is beyond me, but then anything is possible when you're a Zionist. I talk more about Zionism in episode 10. The article goes on. Why are we hearing so much about this caravan? 
Unlike previous smaller convoys of migrants, this one has drawn the attention of US President Donald Trump. He has criticized a number of Central American countries for allowing people to leave the region and come illegally to the US. Mr. Trump has also threatened to cut off foreign aid to these countries, but he has not specified what money will be cut and it is unclear how he would do so. Curbing illegal immigration was one of the main campaign promises Mr. Trump made when he ran for president. His Republican Party is facing midterm elections on the 6th of November and could be unseated by Democrats in the House of Representatives. Mr. Trump has said the invasion of migrants would find the U.S. military waiting for them, and on the 29th of October, it was announced that the U.S. would send 5,200 troops to the border of Mexico. The president also told Fox News that tent cities would be built to house migrants seeking asylum in the U.S. While this story is a classic example of the black and white perception that people are encouraged to see everything from, one way to look at this is that you can't keep letting migrants into a country, any country. There has to be a limit, and on that basis, Trump is correct to try to limit the number of migrants coming into America. Another way to look at this is to say that all migrants should be helped because they're migrants fleeing their country because they have to leave, and so they should be helped, and that's the way the progressives see the situation. However, what the progressives refuse to acknowledge is that among the number claiming to be fleeing violence or fleeing other countries, like migrants fleeing Libya and Syria, for example, into Europe, are single men, not families, single men. Trump says that there are criminals, gangsters, and Middle Eastern terrorists among the number of migrants. Now, maybe, there may not be, but the point is that there's another way to look at the situation, and that's the shades of grey. In any group, there will be nice people, okay people, and psychopathic people. In any group. So no group can be seen as a group because everyone's different, so they have to be judged on their merit. One thing that needs to happen is stronger background checks on migrants. And in the same world, that's what would happen. But the point is that migration is intended because of what it can generate. First of all, you've got divide and rule and race war. If you let endless numbers of migrants into a country and you give them benefits and housing and other essentials for life that the indigenous population are therefore not getting, and through political correctness you don't challenge their violence and gang raping, as happens in Sweden and certainly Britain with gang raping, and you have progressives seeking to silence people stating facts about migrants and migration, you're going to foster a sense of resentment and friction leading to divide and rule. And the irony is that the very resentment progressives complain about, they're actually causing by trying to silence people rather than allowing a debate where all sides can air their view and all points can be taken into consideration. And thus a way forward can be devised from the information and points of view aired. The point is, though, that when you take a step back, both migrants and natives are being played because migration is an elite agenda. Migration destroys a sense of national identity, which is the goal, because if you want a world dictatorship, which the global elite desire, the less than 1%, the deep, deep state, whatever name you want, then you have to break down a sense of national identity. And I remember seeing articles in newspapers before now asking, what does it mean to be British anymore? And talking about how British culture is being erased. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting when you think about it? These progressives in the PC mob, what do they want to do? They want to rewrite history. And where does a country get its national identity from to a large extent? History from the past. If you can rewrite the past, then you're giving people, especially younger people and kids, who only will know the rewritten version of history. This is, as Orwell said in 1984, he who controls the past controls the present, and he who controls the present controls the future. If you can rewrite the past, then you're giving people, especially younger people and kids, a diluted version of what that country's national identity is. And the whole point is to dilute a sense of national identity, to break down resistance to a foreign body running the country. 
rather than having the people of that country coming together as a nation with a true sense of national identity to resist rule from a foreign body. You've got these progressives saying that statue should be taken down or that event with mentioning this figure, this historical figure should be cancelled or whatever. Constantly trying to rewrite the past or whitewash the past. And that plays into this agenda with migration. I've talked before about a guy called Dr. Richard Day. He stood up at a meeting of paediatricians in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in 1969. He was a executive of an organization called Planned Parenthood, which is a Rockefeller organization in America. And he was very focused on eugenics and population control, which is why one of the things he talked about was population control. He told people to not take notes and to turn off any recording equipment because for some reason, nobody seems to know why, he was going to tell them how the world was going to change. And when you look at what he said in 1969 and compare it to now, it's incredible, including what he said about certain technology, which didn't exist back then. But I've said before that many times society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. And therefore, if you know the agenda, then you can talk about technology that does not exist, at least in the public arena anyway, at the time, because you know it will when the agenda reaches that stage. Because either it already does, or you know it will exist. I mean, do people really think that this elite are sitting around hoping that technology they need to reach the next stage of their agenda will be invented by some geek in a garage or a university dorm room by chance? Oh, what a bit of luck. That technology we need to advance our agenda has just been invented. Oh, we couldn't have, we couldn't have had better luck. Computers... Oh, computers were invented just at the right time. Do people really think that's what's happening? If they do, they should check themselves into naivety anonymous. Anyway, one of the things that Dr. Richard Day said was about migration. He said he was quoted by a guy called Dr. Lawrence Dunnigan, who did a series of interviews because he did take notes that night. And many years later, he did a series of interviews talking about what Dr. Richard Day said in that meeting. And he quotes Day as saying about migration, people without roots in their new locations and traditions are easier to change in a place where there are a lot of transplanted people as compared to trying to change traditions in a place where people grew up and had an extended family, where they had roots. With this global interdependence, the national identities would tend to be de-emphasized. Each area depended on every other area for one or another elements of its life. We would all become citizens of the world rather than citizens of any one country. And that explains not just why migration is happening, but also explains why, and one of the reasons why, bodies like the European Union exist. Because independence equals choice equals freedom. A lack of dependence or interdependence equals less choice equals more control because you then decide who gets what that's why one of the goals of the elite's agenda in fact the foundation on which it stands or falls in many ways is taking decision making away from sovereign countries and making them increasingly less sovereign and handing that power and decision making to a central point this is why they want unions for each part of the world. They've already got an African union. And 
They want an American Union designed to be evolved out of NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement. Just as we were told the European Union was just going to be a free trade zone, just about jobs, just about trade. And then it morphs into what it's become, which is a dictatorship of Europe for those countries that are involved with it, which it was always going to because of this necessity to constantly bring decision-making to a central point. And the idea is that world government would dictate to the unions, which would dictate to regions, which we now call countries, mega-regions, mega-cities, smart cities. So, in this way, there's a connection between migration and the European Union and the smart cities, mega-cities agenda. And the smart cities will very much feature smart technology, which takes us onto the transhumanism agenda. So, there's more to migration than just people coming into a country. And when migration is appreciated in its true context, then we can see why there's such an effort to brand criticism and questioning of migration racist through political correctness, and why migration is so incessant into Europe and America. Because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. The next subject this week is food. This is in the Daily Mail. Organic food lowers blood and breast cancer risk, study finds. Eating only organic food could slash cancer risk, a new study claims. The biggest impact was seen on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which plummeted among those who only ate organic, according to the survey of nearly 70,000 French adults. Overall, their risks of breast cancer also dropped. The finding comes amid a flurry of interest in the cancer risks of pesticides spurred by the Summers Monsanto trial, when a jury awarded a cancer-suffering Reisman $250 million after concluding that Roundup weed killer caused his cancer. The health benefit was far greater for obese people they found. However, the diet had no significant effect on bowel cancer, which is soaring in numbers globally or prostate cancer. Our results indicate that higher organic food consumption is associated with a reduction in the risk of overall cancer. Lead author Dr. Julia Baudry of the Centre of Research in Epidemiology and Statistics in Sorbonne, Paris, said... We observed reduced risk for specific cancer sites, postmenopausal breast cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and all lymphomas, and among individuals with a higher frequency of organic food consumption. Although our findings need to be confirmed, promoting organic food consumption in the general population could be a promising preventative strategy against cancer. The article goes on. Organic food standards do not allow the use of synthetic fertilizers, pesticides and genetically modified organisms and restrict the use of veterinary medicines. Organic food standards do not allow the use of synthetic fertilizers, pesticides and genetically modified organisms and restrict the use of veterinary medications. Consequently, organic products are less likely to contain pesticide residues than conventional foods. While organic food is nothing new, more and more studies are showing how pivotal it could be for your health. A recent review found that while pesticide manufacturers dispute cancer links, the amount of evidence showing the links to be true was overwhelming. Earlier this year, a European Food Safety Authority report found almost half, 44% of standard food contains one or more chemicals, compared to just 6.5% of organic food. Dr. Baudry explained among the environmental risk factors for cancer, there was growing evidence of a link between exposure to pesticides, notably in farm workers and cancer development. She added, while dose responses of such molecules or possible cocktail effects are not well known, an increase in toxic effects has been suggested even at low concentrations of pesticide mixtures.
Because of their lower exposure to pesticide residues, it can be hypothesized that high organic food consumers may have a lower risk of developing cancer. Furthermore, natural pesticides allowed in organic farming in the European Union exhibit much lower toxic effects than the synthetic pesticides used in conventional farming. The article goes on. But little research has been done, so our team scored 68,946 volunteers who had answered a health and lifestyle questionnaire for the French population study, Nutrinet Santé, on how much organic food they ate. The researchers then followed the participants' health from 2009 to 2016, asking them to report if and when they got cancer. The cohort, who were 78% female and an average age of 44, were broken up into four groups, according to their organic diet food scores. Factoring in known cancer risks, the proportion of participants in the top quartile, a quartile is defined as the middle number between the smallest number and the median of the data set, and a data set is the collection of data. A collection of related sets of information is composed of separate elements but can be manipulated as a unit by a computer. That's the first quartile. The second quartile is the median of the data. And the median is defined as the value that, such that a number is equally likely to fall above or below the median. The median is a commonly used measure of the properties of a data set in statistics and probability theory. And the third quartile is the middle value between the median and the highest value of the data set. So in other words, the middle value between Dr. Baudry said the findings which were weighted for known cancer risk, including lifestyle and family history, also revealed that organic diets benefited obese people the most. Regarding the latter association, previous occupational data have indicated a potential interaction between obesity and pesticide use on cancer risk. It can be hypothesized that obese individuals with metabolic disorders may be more sensitive to potential chemical disruptors such as pesticides. Metabolic disorders are obviously related to the metabolism and are abnormal chemical reactions in the body after the normal metabolic process, the process of converting food into energy. The quote goes on from Dr. Baudry. Our findings revealed a negative association between high organic food scores and postmenopausal breast cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and all lymphomas. No associations were observed with other cancer sites. The article goes on. Participants got a score from 0 to 32 on how often they ate organic food from common food categories such as cereals, fruit and veg, dairy and meat products and more. Among the participants, 1,340 first incident cancer cases were identified during the study's follow-up period. The most common was 459 breast cancers followed by 180 prostate cancers, 135 skin cancers, 99 colorectal cancers, 47 non-Hodgkin lymphomas and 15 other lymphomas. High organic food scores were inversely associated with the overall risk of cancer being 25% less for those at the top quartile compared to the bottom. But Dr. Baudry warned of the limitations of the study saying the findings needed to be confirmed and with only 90% of cancers were accurately reported by participants. She added the organic food effect on cancer was not seen when the cohort was further broken down to compare people with similar lifestyles such as how much they smoked and education levels. She said when considering different subgroups, the results herein were no longer statistically significant in younger adults, men participants with only a high school diploma or secondary school diploma as we say in Britain and with no family history of cancer, never smokers and current smokers and participants with a high overall dietary quality while the strongest association was observed among obese individuals. Limitations were it was based on volunteers who were likely particularly health-conscious individuals. Participants were more female, well-educated and exhibit healthier behaviours compared with the French general population. These factors may have led to a lower cancer incidence herein than the national estimates as well as higher levels of organic food consumption in our sample. Paper was published in JAMA Internal Medicine. So, 
eating organic food is better for your health, according to this study. Well, thank goodness we've got scientific studies to tell us the bloody obvious. Eating organic food is better for your health. You know, I'm so glad the research team at the Centre of Research in Epidemiology and Statistics in Sorbonne in Paris were able to study that because otherwise I'd never have worked that out. We live in an inversion. So many things in this world are inverted, the opposite of how they should be. And when you realise this simple fact, you see examples everywhere, and organic food is one of them. There should be no such thing as organic food. We should just have food. The only reason we have what we call organic food is because we also have the opposite of organic food. We have what passes for food, a chemical concoction. We also have food sprayed with chemicals like pesticides and herbicides like Roundup. And we have genetically modified food, which is designed to genetically modify us, as I explained in episode 26, neither of which are organic. So we therefore need a distinction between that kind of food and organic food, when organic food should be the norm. There should only be organic food. We should just call it food. We shouldn't need to give it a name. It should just be food. Organic food costs a higher price than other food when it should be the norm. It shouldn't cost a higher price because there should be nothing else cheaper than it because nothing else should exist. At one point, food was grown in the community and thus it didn't need to be preserved in the same way with preservatives like it is now and has been ever since supermarkets appeared when it's now driven to supermarkets in vans on longer journeys. We're seeing now and have for a few years the attacks on small landowners, farmers, people growing their own food, and this is for two reasons. One, the plan under the UN's Agenda 21 is to remove people from vast tracts of land and herd and cram them into human settlement zones in a collection of connected regionalised areas, which we presently call countries, as I said with a previous story. Megacities, smart cities, as I just talked about. I talk about the Smart Cities Agenda in episode 4, and I go into what the focus on smart in terms of technology is all about in episode 11. And the second reason is food production is designed to be completely the reservation of corporations. The plan is everything will be corporatized. Food will be entirely genetically modified and filled with chemicals and goodness knows what else. Agenda 21 talks about measures being put in place to handle water and the supply of water. What that really means is dictating who has access to water, which is filled with chemicals, including fluoride, because water already is filled with chemicals in many places around the world, including fluoride in some areas. As I said just now, I talk in episode 26 about why genetically modified food is there to genetically modify us. I called that episode genetic engineering, and I talk a lot about genetics in that episode. One of the scams played is to have animals that are not themselves genetically modified, like here in Britain, for example, but the animals are fed genetically modified animal feed. This has been reported in the mainstream media. When the person eats the food or food products derived from that animal, like milk, for example, or food containing milk, then that crosses over to the person. It's not the same as the animal itself being genetically modified, obviously, but there is genetically modified material there that crosses over to people when they eat such food. This is the... This is a technique they use a lot where they know some people are going to turn against something they want. So obviously they're going to look for alternatives. And the idea is to hijack the alternatives as well. Like water. They know some people are going to realise that water is filled with chemicals and in some areas fluoride. So people are going to look to bottled water instead. Except that bottled water, as I featured in a story in episode 3, plastics have been getting... A lot of attention recently, quite rightly so, not least for its effect on ocean life. But in terms of humans, bottled water 
bottles. Not all of them, but some of them have been found to contain chemicals like BPA, which has an effect on fertility, among other effects. They know some people are going to turn to alternative medicine, alternative forms of treatment, because they're going to become aware of how useless and potentially damaging to health mainstream medicine and forms of treatment are. So what we've got now increasingly is synthetic alternative treatments, synthetic versions of natural remedies. It's a technique that's used a lot. Bring in something you want, you know people are going to look for alternatives, hijack the alternative. One of the effects of the chemicals used on food and in food and genetically modified food is obviously the impact on health. And the point is the impact on health is intended, not least because of its contribution to the depopulation agenda, which I've mentioned many times before. The main reason the elite have a depopulation agenda is because of what I said earlier, the human settlements, that smart cities agenda. Anything to do with depopulation, anything to do with depopulation plays into the smart cities agenda. And this points to the interconnected nature of the elite's agenda. Look at how many areas of society affect health and are designed to affect health. It's all playing into this agenda. Of course, that's not to say that absolutely everything that negatively impacts on health is knowingly done as part of this agenda. Of course not, but many areas of society are, that's the point. That's also not to say that everything that happens in society and the world is coldly calculatedly part of the elite's agenda. Of course not, but the direction of society and the world is coldly calculatedly moving in the direction of the elite's agenda because society is agenda-driven, not people-driven. The next subject this week is poppies. This is in the Telegraph. People who wear white poppies are attention seekers hijacking symbols to push their own agenda, MP says. A Tory MP and former soldier has said people who wear white poppies rather than red ones are attention seekers who should be ignored. While the red poppy remembers the sacrifice made by British troops in the combined forces in conflict, the white poppy represents all war casualties regardless of alliance. But Johnny Mercer said the white poppies, endorsed and distributed by the Peace Pledge Union, are attention-seeking rubbish and call for people to ignore those wearing them. The Plymouth MP and former army captain, in a tweet commending veteran Brian Wood for announcing he would be wearing his red poppy this year to mark armistice, said if you don't want to wear a poppy, don't bother. They fought and died so you could choose, but don't deliberately try and hijack its symbolism for your own ends. The PPU condemned his comments in a tweet, saying we're not hijacking anything. The union's website states white poppies are worn in the run-up to Remembrance Day every year by thousands of people in the UK and beyond and have been around for more than 80 years. There are three elements to the meaning of white poppies. They represent remembrance for all victims of war, a commitment to peace and a challenge to attempts to glamorise or celebrate war, it states. Well, one thing which really bugs me is people who say they support war and invasion when they have absolutely no idea what the war or invasion is really about. They've just taken the official story without question because government said it or the united nations or whoever they support the war because they feel they should because that's what you do well why isn't it interesting how many people especially clueless celebrities don't get me started who say they stand for peace yet if you ask them the next day do they support the latest war the dynamic duo britain and america have got themselves into they'll usually say yeah of course they just say whatever suits with no real knowledge of what they're talking about anyone can flash a peace sign Knowledge is what matters, not meaningless gestures. How many celebrities supported or would have supported, if asked, the invasion of Iraq in 2003, before it came out, although it wasn't obvious at the time, that there were no weapons of mass destruction and the whole thing was allowed to invade Iraq? I mean, Blair and Bush, bit of a clue. I stand for peace. 
unless my government says we should invade or conflict with a country on a spurious reason, in which case I totally support their decision. That's the perception. I'm sick of it, to be honest. Even those in the public eye who say they stand for peace. I'd much rather they say nothing than fraudulently claim to stand for peace because it sounds and looks good or because they like the idea of peace but have no real knowledge. Virtue signalling is what this MP Mercer is talking about and we see it increasingly nowadays, not least due to social media, where anyone who speaks against the official line or the politically correct line or who makes controversial statements online gets the treatment. People who just say the right things because they think they're the right things with no real attachment or understanding of them. That's virtue signaling. If people wear a poppy for that reason, it is attention seeking. It's saying, don't criticize me, in fact, like me, because I'm wearing a poppy. I'm doing what you're supposed to do. Therefore, you can't have a go at me. Of course, there will be those, understandably, who wear poppies because they lost loved ones in wars or they have loved ones fighting wars or we fought wars and that's totally understandable why they would wear poppies. It's the virtue signaling bunch I have a problem with. Wars are engineered into place, certainly the major ones are anyway, as vehicles to change society. When you look after the Second World War, for example, you had the first attempt at a centralised body of nations called the League of Nations. Then when people said, we've just fought a war, to stop this kind of centralisation in Europe, they had to call a halt to that. But then later on, we had the European Commission later to become the European Union. The point is, though, that even though it was sold to us at the time as just a free trade zone, it was known that it would become the European Union that it is today. Documents, as reported in the mainstream media, reveal that when Edward Heath signed Britain into the European Union in 1973, it was known what the effect would be on Britain's fishing, mining and manufacturing industries, that they'd be run down and sold off to a large extent. And this goes back to what I said earlier. Interdependence means control. So what you do is manufacture a situation where areas of society needed, but not in great supply in one country, or not as good as it used to be in one country, is handled by another country. So you engineer interdependence and you rule every country in your union, in this case the European Union. Everyone is dependent on everyone else, and everyone else is ruled by the same union your country is ruled by, thus generating control. Another body that came out of the Second World War was the International Monetary Fund, a result of the Bretton Woods Agreement, which appears to be a global body to organise and handle monetary affairs, but that's like saying the European Union is a body to organise and handle affairs relating to Europe. It is, but it's not about organising Europe for the benefit of the people in the countries, it's about centralised control. If you want a dictatorship, you obviously have to bring decision-making into the hands of fewer and fewer people. Look at the way the world has changed since the war on terror. Endless legislation and law, endless surveillance, endless destruction of basic freedoms, and migration. Do we really think that when Blair and Bush, Cameron and Obama, and now May and Trump are bombing countries to smithereens ab abroad, that they didn't know what the outcome would be? That thousands would have to flee as refugees? Of course they did, but that's one of the reasons for the war on terror. There's a great quote by Hermann Goering, a Nazi figure, who said, The people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. That is easy. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country. This is the technique MP Mercer, this former army captain, is talking about. Another quote from Abraham Lincoln. Public sentiment is everything. 
With public sentiment, nothing can fail. Without it, nothing can succeed. In other words, manipulation of perception is everything. With it, the elite's agenda cannot fail. Without it, the elite's agenda cannot succeed. And that's the point of pay-per-view, to get information out that doesn't get covered in the mainstream media, so people have more of a choice from which to form their perceptions. The final subject this week is... Justice and political correctness. This is in the Daily Mail. This transgender paedophile sexually assaulted a child while identifying as a man and is locked up in a male prison. So why do police insist on saying his crimes were committed by a woman? Police and courts have been accused of pandering to a transgender paedophile by treating him as a woman for crimes he committed when a man. Well, unless he's transitioned medically, biologically, he still is a man. But the 53-year-old, who now goes by the name Carrie Cooper, was treated as a woman at his latest trial. In court documents obtained by the Mail on Sunday, the paedophile is accused of using her finger to carry out the assaults. Technically still a man, so it's his finger, because he's not changed biologically, therefore, at all. Even though Cooper was a man at the time of the offences, he still is, which took place between 2007 and 2012. Cooper was addressed as Carrie in the indictment and in St Albans Crown Court. Last week, Hertfordshire Police announced a woman has been sentenced in the case. If Cooper obtains an official certificate making him illegally female, so he hasn't yet then, his crimes will even be recorded as having been committed by a woman in official statistics. There is growing public concern over transgender prisoners, particularly after the case of Karen White, who sexually assaulted two inmates in New Hall Women's Prison while on remand for a knife attack. Prosecutor said White, who was formerly known as David Thompson, used the gender transitioning process as a way to get access to vulnerable victims. Cooper, a delivery driver from Hartford, was first brought to justice in 2011 after he posed as a 15-year-old called Chantel to prevent a 12-year-old girl online. Two days later, he picked her up from her home in Basingstoke, Hampshire, took her to his house and raped her twice. Cooper pleaded guilty at Winchester Crown Court in September 2011 to rape and abduction. Police then discovered he had also had sex with a vulnerable 15-year-old girl and charged him with grooming offences, making indecent photographs and sexual activity with a minor to which he pleaded guilty at St Albans Crown Court in October 2012. But between the trial and sentencing the following month, when he was jailed for 14 years and 4 months, Cooper had changed his identity to a woman and he was referred to as both Gary and Carrie in court records. Cooper was first sent to HMP Parkhurst, a male prison on the Isle of Wight, but has since been moved to HMP Little Hay, a jail for male sex offenders in Cambridgeshire. Then another girl revealed that Cooper had subjected her to years of sexual abuse, starting in 2007 when she was just seven. He had crept into her bedroom and molested her, saying it was their secret. In this case, Cooper was found guilty of nine counts of sexual assault of a child under 13, and last week's an Albridge Crown Court sentenced him to seven and a half years in addition to his existing term. Yet although the offences were committed when Cooper was a man, the indictment produced by the Crown Prosecution Service and read out in court referred to Carrie Cooper in details of the offences, included using a part of her body, namely her finger, to abuse the victim. After the sentencing, Hertfordshire Constabulary announced on their website the news under the headline, Woman Sentenced for Historic Sexual Offences Against a Child. Well, they made a mistake then, it should have said man. One outraged Twitter user, Lily Maynard, asked, When men's crimes are recorded as those of women, what will happen to the records that measure male violence against females? Kirsten Chauvel, a barrister at Matrix Chambers, said, Respecting transgender rights does not mean misgendering gendered violence. Exactly. Last night, Hertfordshire Police said, As per national guidelines, a transgender person's police national computer file will have them recorded as the gender they were at birth unless they are in possession of a gender reassignment certificate. 
these guidelines would also be followed when recording crime. Well, that's the way it should be. Crime prosecution service said in the court, a person is addressed according to their chosen identity at the time of the prosecution. Well, that's really nonsensical. However, the quote goes on, this does not affect any charges which are determined by the person's identity when the offence was committed. There's another article here in the Daily Mail. Again, this is from this week. The rape of justice. Girl 15 who was held as a sex slave by an Asian grooming gang and had a son conceived through rape tells how social services took a child and even gave her attacker a say in the boy's future. It is a terrible ordeal for any mother to have to go to court to fight for the future of her child, a torment made all the worse when the father has a history of abuse and violence. For Sarah, not her real name, the stress was even greater because in an impersonal courtroom she was forced to sit barely six feet away from a man she thought was out of her life forever. A member of a ruthless Asian grooming gang that she says snatched her from a Tesco car park as a teenager and kept her as a sex slave for 12 years. More agonizing still, she says the five-year-old son they were fighting for was conceived through rape, part of a pattern of assault, aggression, controlling behaviour and degrading verbal abuse, including constantly being demeaned as white trash that she suffered at the hands of her abductors. White trash, that's a racist term, is it not? But it can't be racist because an Asian has said it. Get into what I mean by that in a minute. The Mail on Sunday can now reveal that this alleged rapist was incredibly given a say in the future care of the young boy and could have a role in his upbringing, heaping fresh agony on Sarah, who were already suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and depression, had seen her child taken away from her by social services. As if that was not horrifying enough, Sarah went through the torment not once but twice. After escaping her captors, she was tracked down by another man who she is convinced was linked to the gang. She claims he also beat and raped her resulting in the birth of a daughter earlier this year. Again, social services declared Sarah an unfit mother and took the baby away within 24 hours of her birth. Again, they sought out the father to give him a say in the child's upbringing. He wanted no part and the baby was put up for adoption to Sarah's great distress. She may never see her child again and certainly not until she is 18. The child is 18. This pain caused by social services is in some ways worse than the pain caused by this gang, she says. When they are taking away my children, it feels exactly the same as what that group did. The same threat, the same anxiety, everything. I am desperate to see my daughter. Throughout her captivity, Sarah claims she was raped, beaten and given sedatives by the gang who forced her into three Sharia marriages and made her have eight abortions. Sarah's case was described by a member of the House of Lords last month as the most serious example of sex grooming to emerge in Britain. Crossbencher Baroness Caroline Cox told this newspaper, I agonise over Sarah's continuing ordeal, and it is appalling that she was forced to confront one of her alleged rapists at court hearing, where he was consulted about her son's future. How can the courts and social services allow this cruel treatment? Sarah, who grew up in the home counties, is the youngest of four children. Home counties are counties that surround London. Is the youngest of four children born to a builder and a housewife. For legal reasons and her safety, her real name where she was kidnapped, where she was held and where she now lives must remain secret. When she was lured into a car on an autumn afternoon, she was a quiet 15-year-old who dreamed of becoming a midwife. She had never had a boyfriend. From the outset, her kidnappers were determined to make Sarah dependent on them. She says they hid her in various houses and severed her contact with the outside world by refusing her a mobile phone or computer. She was made to wear Islamic dress, learn the Quran, and speak only the Pakistani languages, Urdu and Punjabi. In her years of captivity, Sarah fell victim to Stockholm Syndrome, where a prisoner forms an emotional attachment to a captor, becoming particularly attached to the gang leader, even though she felt her mind was being twisted. It was only on the second night that he first raped her. I was pulling back from him and I was scared, she recalls. I felt angry, dirty and disgusted after he had finished. While attacking her, he told her he had saved her from the gutter, where white girls with low morals like her belonged. They also threatened to harm her family should she try to escape both tactics used by similar gangs elsewhere in Britain. There were times over the years when Sarah's family came tantalisingly close 
to extracting her from the situation. Once she saw her mother in a supermarket and they hugged and managed to exchange a few words, but the gang then bundled her away and sped off in a car. That night, Sarah was moved to a different town. In the car on the way, one of her doctors smashed against the dashboard and windows, which became splattered with my blood, she says. For three hours each morning, she had to cook, clean and iron for the gang. If she didn't, she said she was beaten. Out of the blue, the leader announced she had married her. I hadn't been into any ceremony, but he showed me the Islamic wedding certificate signed by an imam at the local mosque, she says. Rape and abortion shaped her existence. When the leader tired of her, she was married off to another man, with whom she had her son and later to someone else. She tried several times to escape, often running down the street, only to be grabbed and dragged back to the house for a beating. Once she used her captor's mobile phone to call for a cab while she slept. When the taxi arrived, I was in Islamic clothes. I raced out and told the driver, a white man, who kept asking if I was alright because I was so pale, to take me to where my brother lived, she said. But the gang tracked her down and again she was drawn into their clutches. Eventually, however, she did completely extricate herself from her captors when after a particularly savage beating, a neighbour called the police. When the police arrived, I was still unconscious on the bed and blood pouring out of my mouth. She was rushed to hospital and her son was looked after by a family member. In hospital, she finally began to open up to the police. She assumed that the state would wrap her in protective arms. Instead, she feels the local authority involved in a case turned against her, exacerbating her distress. Social workers refer to episodes of poor emotional presentation which undermined her ability to care for her child. They also questioned her ability to work with the professionals. Baroness Cox says to take her children away from her at this point after all she had enjoyed is particularly cruel and unfair. Inexplicably, social services invited the father of her son. A man, Sarah says, raped her repeatedly to have his say on what might be best for their child. She had no idea that he would attend the family court hearing and she was sitting with her legal team in an anteroom when she caught sight of him through a glass panel door. He was staring at me in an intimidating way, she recalls. She felt a familiar dread, her heart rate leapt and bar rose in her throat. I said, oh God, he's there. He went into the court and I could hear his footsteps behind me. He stood up and said, I want to know what's happened to my son, your honour. I shouted, nothing, this is all to do with you lot, referring to the gang. And he just turned to me and smirked. I was so upset. That was one of the most unbelievable things that happened. The article goes on. It was decided at the hearing that the man should engage with social workers and be assessed to determine whether he should have future access. It made my skin crawl to see him there, allowed to stand up and say his piece, says Sarah. She finds the decision to involve him obscene and feels equally appalled at the way social services went to great lengths to trace the father of her daughter. Around this time, Sarah claims he sent her threatening text messages. In one... She says that he claimed to have done a deal with social services to place the child with a Muslim family, although there is no evidence that this is true. Sarah says every time the court contacted him, he threatened me, saying he would slit my throat, throw acid in my face and say my family are going to get it. He wanted to be a part of his daughter's upbringing, but social services still asked if he could suggest a friend or relative to take care of the girl. But they refused Sarah's pleas to look after her daughter, even when I begged them, she says. She now feels as if right and wrong had been turned upside down. By her own admission, Sarah regrets some of her behaviour during her dealings with the authorities, but she insists they were born from frustration and that feeling cornered it was inevitable that she would fight to keep her children she says people get ptsd after fighting in wars but then they return to their families and can get help i was never offered any real help not by the state all the social services are interested in is to stigmatize me to provoke me so they can say i cannot work with professionals and use that to take away my children where were those social services when i as a child was kidnapped and raped for years it is only now i am free that they rushed to the scene to wreck what remains of my life her son, whom she is permitted to see for just out four hours a week, 
lives with a member of her family under a special guardianship order. But that is more than she will see of her baby daughter, who has been put up for adoption. Sarah said that social services even tried to prevent her from saying goodbye to her baby, although a judge overruled that decision. I recently had a text message from social services saying, do you want to say goodbye, she revealed. How insensitive. She is still waiting to hear when they will meet while reflecting on all that she has lost. The other morning, my friend came around with a eight-week-old baby, she said, and it's nice to have cuddles, but I was thinking, imagine what was my little girl crawling around. What is she doing now? Sarah believes that given a little more time and care, she would make an effective, loving mother. Baroness Cox, who has become closely involved within the case with Sarah's family, agrees. I was at home when her little boy came home from school and I saw their love for another, she says. My pain at Sarah's ordeal is exacerbated by the knowledge that there must be many hundreds of girls suffering from the horrors of gang rapes in the UK today and in many cases the perpetrators are still living locally with impunity. The government must ensure political correctness does not inhibit police and social workers from providing protection and help for women who are suffering in ways which would make suffragettes turn in their graves. Baroness Cox also put Sarah in touch with lawyers from the Christian Legal Centre who are helping with the case. Andrea Williams, its chief executive, said social services and the family law court system do not understand the violence and devastation of grooming gangs. Rather than bringing the aggressors to justice, the police and social services abandoned Sarah, leaving her to suffer alone. It is cruel. Any civilised system would work to help Sarah to heal, not steal her children from her just as she is breaking free from a gang that has abused her for years. Instead, the system has actively aggravated her trauma by ripping her children away from her and giving her rip as a voice in her upbringing. Both the local authority and the police force involved in Sarah's case declined to comment. Well, people say political correctness has gone mad. You hear them say that about stories, and in relation to these stories particularly, they'd say that. But they're wrong. Political correctness has not gone mad. Political correctness is mad. It has very little basis, if any at all, in sanity or common sense, or for that matter, humour. I mentioned earlier that depending on your race, you can get away with certain crimes that white people, especially white males, have no chance of getting away with. And quite rightly so, that they should not get away with it. This is the PC Pyramid, and I explain what I mean by that in episodes 13 and 15. I'm going to be making YouTube videos soon on certain subjects snippets of the podcast with an image and that will be the video and that will be on YouTube soon and the PC pyramid will be one of the videos it's everywhere it's almost like people have to consult the pyramid before deciding what action if any they'll take in relation to a situation I imagine law enforcement must have like a wall chart poster in their offices which they consult before they decide what to do oh you're a white male okay what does it say for a white male punished to the full extent of the law Okay, I'll do that then. Oh, you're Asian. Okay, what does it say for Asian? Let them get away with it or you'll be called racist. Okay, better do or say nothing. This is how the PC pyramid works. The higher you are, the more protection you get from political correctness. I'll explain this in far more detail as I say in episodes 13 and 15. There is another way to look at this, however. And that is, instead of seeing everyone as a group, and the more of a victim you are, the higher you are in the hierarchy. It's a hierarchy of victimhood. Instead of seeing everyone as an identity group, see them as a person. If you see people as people, if you see someone as a person, then there's no inequality because the one thing we all have in common, regardless of how we choose to identify, is that we're all people. Justice must be blind. Seeing people as people only is the ultimate blind justice. The PC pyramid is also a pyramid of tyranny. Zionists can get away with anything, transgender can get away with virtually anything, same with Asian and Muslim. If they're in a grooming gang, 
in a lot of cases, nothing seems to happen to them, if anything ever does. So you've got a system whereby, because of your protection via the PC pyramid, you can do what you like. And more than that, anyone who questions you or challenges the basis, be it historical basis or biological basis or legal basis, on which you base your actions or identity, they can be found guilty of a hate crime and either intimidated into silence or thrown in jail. And if people think the latter is far-fetched, I feature a story in episode 16 of proposals by the Sentencing Council, a public body of the Ministry of Justice, which is a government department here in Britain, for exactly that to happen. I don't think it's meant to end at proposals either myself. So you can do more or less what you like and anyone challenging you faces consequences. How is that not a tyranny? I've said before, when you look at the list of subjects covered under political correctness, you're looking at a list of elite agendas. Not every subject, but some of them are subjects to be exploited to advance the elite's agenda. In terms of the second article, I first came across the epidemic of the state stealing children about eight years ago now, and I've seen many examples of it since. I talk about this in episode 20, and I talk about child abuse by those in the upper levels of society, as it's called, in episode 30. I've talked a lot about children throughout pay-per-view because they're targeted in so many ways and also because they'll be the adults of tomorrow in the world of the elite's agenda when it's really advanced, if we allow it. I know a friend of a friend of mine who's had their child taken away and I've met them and we've chatted since I met them, only briefly online. There's nothing violent or in any way dangerous about them. They don't want to harm their child. They're not irresponsible. There's no genuine basis on which to take this woman's child away and yet the child's been taken away. This is a recurring, recurring theme. If there's no genuine basis on which to take a child or children away, make one up. And this is what happens again and again and again because in many cases the people behind it are psychopathic. Psychopathy is a spectrum. It doesn't just mean people who go crazy shooting people. It's a spectrum. And there's what's known as the hair test developed in the 1970s by Canadian psychologist Robert D. Hare, and if you have enough traits of the hair test checklist, you are considered psychopath. And how can you be anything but psychopathic to orchestrate taking a child or children away from a loving parent or parents, knowing there's no genuine basis on which to do so? People in social services who work in these areas have been recruited, not everyone of course, but certain people, and increasingly so. They've been recruited to fill the positions of decision-making relating to children being taken away through what's known as psychometric testing based on answers given to carefully written questions. You can very accurately glean someone's personality. And there are people who are recruited by social services based on their personality above anything else. And they end up in positions of decision-making over whether or not to take children away from loving parents. I've said before, and we're going there more and more all the time, the idea is that the state becomes the parents. It starts with authority, not least through school, making more and more decisions parents should be making, not least in relation to holidays. That one started a while back. I remember that one when I was in school. Never made any difference in my case, though. Kids having to wear school jumpers even in hot weather. That should be the kid's choice, that one, never mind parents what kids are allowed to have in their lunchbox and writing to parents to suggest they pack a healthier lunch next time. This is now, and it's only the early stages. Children being taken away from parents is all part of this agenda. Transgender and fluid gender is all part of this because, as I've said before, the agenda behind the focus on transgender and fluid gender, which is being taught to kids in school, is an end to gender and an end to sexual reproduction. 
an end to birth, an end to family. If you want to see the maternity wards of the future, just go on an image search engine and type in laboratory, because that's where all the focus on transgender and fluid gender is going, if we allow it. The agenda is humans are created from scratch in laboratories. I'm not saying people who genuinely feel they're in the wrong body should not get any support to deal with coming to terms with that and being open about that to other people and the transition process. Of course they should. But the agenda is to exploit those people, first of all, with political correctness. You can't say that, it might upset transgender people. And also with using those people to push the propaganda and the agenda. This is one reason why transgender is so high up the PC pyramid hierarchy structure because it's so important to the elite's agenda. At the top, bar none, is Zionism, revisionist Zionism, elite Zionism, and then below Zionism is transgender. A good rule of thumb to try to identify what's part of the elite's agenda, if you don't know the agenda, is to look at what you're not allowed to criticise and that will give you a good idea. People are holding back from saying certain things that need saying and asking questions that need asking either because they don't want to be seen as politically incorrect or they don't want to offend someone or both. We have to stop doing that otherwise the elite's agenda will unfold and freedom will be a thing of the past. It's just a choice, it's up to us, it always has been. So that's it for this week. That's the news, that's the contest in connections, that's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.